There's an intelligent way to approach marriage. Intelligence. Nothing has caused the human race so much trouble as intelligence. Modern marriage. Now we progressed emotionally. Baloney. Once it was see somebody, get excited, get married. Now it's read a lot of books, fence with a lot of four-syllable words, psychoanalyze each other until you can't tell the difference between a petting party and a civil service exam. Welcome to the Magic Lantern Podcast, an ongoing informal discussion of the films we love and the things we love about them. I am Erica Long. And I am Cole Rowling. Each episode of The Magic Lantern will be devoted to one film that we alternately select, and we will discuss why it is significant to us. We are at episode number 56 this time around, and that is Erica's choice. So what you got there, Hotshot? Well, I've had a cold this week, and so it's confined me to the house, and I've been spying on my neighbors. (laughs) Therefore, I chose Rear Window from 1954, directed by Alfred Hitchcock, with James Stewart, Grace Kelly, Thelma Ritter, Raymond Burr, and Wendell Corey. A professional photographer is laid up with a broken leg, wheelchair-bound in his apartment, and he begins to watch his neighbors and becomes convinced that one of them has committed murder. Okay, we are returning to Hitchcock yet again. That's the only time we've featured a director three times now. We did Rebecca because it was your introduction to art film in a theater setting. Psycho because of the huge impact that it made. But did you choose this because this is your favorite? Do you consider this his masterpiece? Because I know Vertigo has come into vogue lately with the sight and sound poll and everything as being the acknowledged pinnacle of Hitchcock. Where do you put this one? This definitely falls in my top two to three rotating Hitchcock favorites. I do prefer it to Vertigo. That's just a personal choice. I completely understand why it has become more of an artistic masterpiece for some people. I would put Rear Window right up there as well, and hopefully we'll get to a number of those things that have made this such a taut classic in my eyes. And really part of why I chose this was coming to those dog days of summer when you have too much time on your hands and it's way too hot outside. And that kind of heat inspires me to want to murder. I recently had no AC in my car again, so I was contemplating which of my neighbors I could pick off. I would like to point out for the record, to celebrate the dog days of summer, I chose Bonbon, a triumph of the human spirit, and you chose a film in which a dog gets its neck broken. I always forget about that until I'm watching it, and now it's even more poignant than ever. I hate to say that as if I somehow didn't care about (laughs) animals before I got one, but now it physically hurts me to see anything like that happen. And I do want to mention again, because I can hear it in my voice, I really do have a cold, so it is affecting my voice a, a bit, so excuse me for this recording. Now, if I consider this to be in my very, very top tier Hitchcock, what do you put in your top Hitchcock? Tier Hitchcock. Number one favorite of all time, regardless of how you think of it artistically, Rope. Hands down. There is no more favorite Hitchcock film of mine than that. An easy second place is Shadow of a Doubt. I love the sinister Joseph Cotton. I would say with Rope, I think you feel like me with Rear Window, that you don't just like it because of the trick. Of the parameter that he set for himself and how he filmed it. And this has a lot of really interesting set pieces 
and confines like that takes place in, in the apartment. The point of view is mostly from the apartment, except for a very few small scenes. But that's not only why I like it. Same situation with me and Rope. I know the gimmick is that it's shot as if it's a single unbroken take, but that is not at all why I choose it as among my favorites. It's an interesting footnote, but it's much more about the interplay of the characters and, as Crow T. Robot says, getting to decide who lives and who dies. <laughs> and also, one last note, great James Stewart performance, uh-huh, just exactly. like in this. So how about we get right into the movie? Sure. We open with that great jazz score. I love it as a setting. Now, this score by Franz Waxman is a little bit of a misdirect because we only hear it at the opening and ending credits and then in one piece of a piano score that we see the composer working on, one of Jeff's neighbors. Otherwise, as much as I love that music, the rest of the sound used in the film is all diegetic, meaning that it's all happening naturally, natural sounds occurring. We also immediately have the establishment of our point of view, which is from Jeff's apartment, and we scan through this small world that Hitchcock has created. Quite literally, this was all a built set. Cost a pretty penny in its day as well. It was pretty extravagant at the time. And it's amazing to think about, looking at it, the actors could actually live in some of those apartments, and some of them did during shooting. They basically used it as sort of a crash pad. The lighting rig was just as complicated. It had to make natural daytime and nighttime lighting. So I think right away we have that virtuosity of place and sound and light. The first thing it made me think of is that if this were Clifford Odette's, this would be all the things we wouldn't see that we would only hear in the background. The cry of the fishmonger and the street vendors and kids playing and street noise. All the things that we would only have as aural decoration this is what we're looking straight into in this case and now we meet our hero by way of his sweaty brow this is lb jeffries jeff to his friends he's a professional photographer clearly likes to take risks in his work and one of those risks has led to his broken leg and he's wheelchair bound for the duration until he gets this cast off And because of the time period, Jeff is also bound to his apartment, so he doesn't have much else to do, or so he thinks, than watch his neighbors. And so let's meet some of them. We've got the struggling composer in one of the apartments. The thing I immediately thought was, are we looking into Rope? And what a neat idea that would have been if somehow we had seen Farley Granger and John Dahl over there. Oh my gosh, what a wonderful idea. Should we remake it? (laughs) That is perfect, babe. I just got so excited. Remake all of Rear Window just so we can do a little insert of rope happening across the courtyard? Yes. It couldn't be rope because this neighborhood is too working class. That's true. One thing to point out about the actor portraying the composer, this is Ross Bagdasarian, also better known as David Seville, who created Alvin and the Chipmunks. We also have a married couple who are sleeping outside because it's so hot. We've got the young dancer whom we come to know as Miss Torso. We've got the lady modern artist, Miss Lonely Hearts, an aging woman living in one of the lower apartments. And Miss Lonely Hearts is played by Judith Evelyn, who is in one of my favorite other examples of marital discord. I almost use this as my recommendation, so I'm going to cheat a little bit. (laughs) You don't say And she is in The Tingler. Ah. 
And then finally, we see the henpecked husband, played by Raymond Burr, who was modeled to look like David O. Selznick. I love that. I love that detail. That's <laughs> so crazy. Hitchcock hated Selznick so much. He could carry a grudge oh, and work it out. You are not kidding. And this henpecked husband has a bed-bound wife in the other room. Clearly, they have not such a great marriage. So we've established this small world of Jeff's current reality. And to me, everyone is struggling to some degree at something. Two things immediately stand out to me. Struggling, yes, but at creative endeavors. You have a sculptor, a dancer, a composer. And the other thing is, everyone is, to my mind, unnaturally comfortable with how much access they are giving to their neighbors. Is that because we are in an America at this point that hasn't learned to so severely distrust yet? We haven't descended, say, into post-Kennedy assassination cynicism? People still trust their neighbors, they still trust their government, and Hitchcock is absolutely banking on that? And also banking on that the most nefarious things are happening right in front of our eyes. Whether they be the petty day-to-day grievances that we have with each other or those small joys as well. It's also taking place in Greenwich Village, so like you mentioned, it's a lower income, more of an artistic bent, especially at that time. And I, for one, pretty much parade around in front of the windows, doing whatever, and kind of never expect anybody to be looking in, which is stupid on my part. But you don't have them flung wide the same way. I don't. But I also think that, oh, the fence is high enough, even though I can see through into the neighbor's yard and there are cracks in it and the windows aren't blackout curtains, that surely nobody's paying attention to whatever it is I'm doing. And this is America. I'll do whatever I want. My angle is much more, if you look into my house and you see something you don't like, that's your problem. Good plan. (laughs) If I'm running around porky pigging it and you happen to look in and catch a glimpse of that, that's on you, not me. Well, that leads me to a question I have for you. Great. I wonder where this is going to go. So, it's clear from the very beginning that Jeff is becoming increasingly more fixated on the glimpses into these neighbors' lives that he's getting. You think so? And Hitchcock said, sure, he's a snooper, but aren't we all? So my question for you is, are you a snooper? Snooper? I don't think so. But by virtue of being a film fan and looking into people's lives via this screen, via this portal, maybe. I would draw a distinction between snooper and looker. I'll look, yes. Snoop, no. I'm not going to sit and try to parse out what many dramas might be happening based on what glimpses I see in between nodding in and out of sleep in my wheelchair. But if the Subaru across the way has the windows flung wide open and is doing something that catches my attention, certainly I will stop and look for at least a little while. The thing I was going to ask you about, because I think you're probably generally about the same as I am when it comes to this stuff, what keeps you from going over into Snoop? Well, I guess I'll ask. Snooper, are you more prone to it than I am? I would probably be much more prone to it than you are. I'll ask probing questions of anybody who wants to sit down and talk to me, but At the end of the day, I just generally don't care that much about (laughs) whatever else is going on. I'm tied up in my own petty dramas, or I'm sleepy and I want to go to bed or go play with the dog, and so I just lose interest, typically. That gets me to where I was going. That's a great segue, thank you. Okay. Because I was wondering if if you're not, is what keeps you from doing it the risk-reward part of the equation for spying on other people? 
I consider it to be all reward. <laughs> no risk. Whatever. You want to come after me? Go ahead. Even if Raymond Burr is going to drop you out of a window. I can take Raymond Burr. Okay. At least when he's dressed up like David O'Selznick. Not when he's Perry Mason. Just <laughs> right. to be clear. Right. One other little detail that I really did enjoy right here in this opening section is that even when we are not talking directly about the neighbors, whatever the conversation is, is syncing up with what is happening across the way. If Thelma Ritter and James Stewart are having a discussion about having a nagging wife, we are catching a glimpse of Thorwald and his wife with their struggles across the courtyard. And it happens more than once. It's fun just to see how that little bit of narration lines up even if it is not specifically addressing what we are looking at. That moment when a gimmick becomes perfection. It's incredibly wonderful to watch and why I think this bears beyond repeated viewing. For me, I probably have seen this at this point maybe 15 times. Mm -hmm. The more you watch it, the more you find those things. There are countless little devices that work perfectly like that. Even down to something as simple as having Torwald wear a hat to get attention the same way Gloria Stewart wore the white gown in The Old Dark House so that she looked like a candle flame moving across the screen. That little bit of detail makes Thorwald stand out as he's moving through this rabbit warren of apartments and our eye is immediately drawn to him. P.S. It would drive me crazy to live like this. With this many people this close to me in such proximity with the sound and the noise, oh, it would drive me insane. That is why I never want to live in an apartment again. I cannot stand to listen to somebody's clarinet practice, <laughs> somebody else's yelling, somebody else's TV habits. I don't want that intruding in my life. But end of my soapbox discussion about my Ayn Rand philosophy, which is what it's starting to sound like. But anyway, and so we're seeing all of this from Jeff's eyes. And what do all of these people mean to him in terms of his views on life and specifically marriage and relationships? We've got one not-so-great marriage, one just sort of so-so marriage, and then a number of other single people, one of whom, Miss Lonely Hearts, is clearly struggling. And now it's into this world that we meet my favorite character in this or any other film. That would be Stella, played by Thelma Ritter. Now, I personally adore Thelma Ritter. I'm with you. And she said something great, which is that Hitchcock never told you if he liked what you did in a scene. And if he didn't like it, he looked like he was going to throw up. <laughs> so Stella is Jeff's conscience, possibly. She's the no-nonsense nurse. She functions two ways. She's that for one thing, but I like her as the Brooklyn to Lisa's Manhattan as well. The thing I like most about what she brings from that relationship angle, she talks about her husband Miles and that they're two maladjusted misfits. I really appreciate that as another maladjusted misfit as well. So Stella questions why Jeff is doing this peeping and also what his problem with Lisa is, who we haven't met yet. It's basically, what are you so afraid of? Now, I happened to be watching something completely unrelated to this earlier today. It was an episode of Andy Griffith. Now, in that, there's a running theme that you'll see in a lot of things of the period, which I think of as the, not the confirmed bachelor, but the longtime bachelor. And this idea that Men were supposed to be either afraid of marriage or completely resistant to it. And that's marriage to anybody. 
Is that something that you also recall from films or TV or radio of that period? Of that period, of this period, of any number of periods. And I'm sure it doesn't come as any surprise to you or anyone else who has listened to the show that it drives me crazy. And I really resent the automatic assumption that this is the thing that everyone is supposed to want. No allowance is made for knowing the difference between fear of commitment and simply knowing yourself and knowing, I simply don't want to be married. No fear. Not afraid of anything. I legitimately prefer this state. And that is given no credence whatsoever, and it makes me insane. To me, it seems like the problem is always posed as the person doesn't want to marry anybody, as opposed to actually examining the relationship, which is what this film does to a certain extent, which I'm much more on board for. Let's talk about why you don't want to marry this person rather than this weird, made-up psychological complex. So at the moment, before Lisa has arrived, it's posed as she's too perfect. She's not ordinary enough. And then we get the final piece of the neighborhood puzzle here. We have the honeymooners arrive. So our last idea of marriage. And now for the moment that I always remembered from the first time that I saw it, the moment that stuck with me, that's the kiss. Whose kiss? Our kiss? Their kiss. The newlyweds kiss. kiss? Both of ours kiss. All of our kisses. What are you referring to? I am referring to Grace Kelly indelibly entering the screen. I don't know what you're talking about. Snooze fest. I thought it was very exciting when I first saw it, and I still do. So is this the moment where we get into your grudge against Grace Kelly? (laughs) I wouldn't say it's a grudge necessarily. Well, maybe so. Maybe so. I hold a grudge against her for having roles that should have gone to other better actresses. So you're starting a beef with dead Grace Kelly. She started it. She walked into the joint like she's a living magazine cover and starts taking his things and throwing them away. She started this fight. That's a great point. I think of her as the engineer. She immediately starts pointing out things that Jeff could and should change that she can conveniently help him do. Already with this business, from the very first entrance, there's this faction of people who believe in this men are from Mars, women are from Venus bullshit that feel like it's okay to go into a shared household, a relationship with someone and do stuff like... Oh, his old t-shirt is driving me crazy. I hate looking at it. Therefore, I'm throwing it out. And this is across gender lines. I picked that example to mirror the film's example. But if I came in here and decided, eh, I'm sick of looking at this thing that you love and threw something away from our house, I'm a monster. It comes down to a very simple rule. Is it yours? No, leave it alone. You do not get to decide. And, at least in as much as we are shown, this is her character in a nutshell. The issue with their relationship, and why he rightly is hesitant, is that someone is going to have to make a huge compromise for this to be successful. And even then, I put successful in quotation marks because someone will not be doing what they want. Someone will not be living the life that they would like to have. The kind of oversimplified choice here is either Jeff stays in town and basically becomes Lisa's idea of a successful businessman. Wearing a suit, doesn't travel all the time, is there in one place where she knows him to be. 
And Jeff's proposal, though I don't really think of it as a proposal, is, well, do you want to go with me? Are you going to travel the world with me? Are you ready for this rough and tumble kind of life? Or really, can't we just have things stay the same? To which her response is essentially, oh, Jeff, stop doing what you love. Well, honestly, I can see both sides of their argument, and that just means that they shouldn't be with each other. Yes, exactly. It's reasonable for one person to say, can we stay with the things as they are? And it's reasonable for another person to say, no, I want them to be differently, regardless of gender. But like you're saying, they're fighting this battle that I don't think is going to be successfully won. But at any rate, Grace Kelly is hot as shit, and Mm. I don't know what you're talking Mm. about. No. Maybe in the most pristine, boring Barbie doll, doesn't know how to use what she's got way. Oh, Cole, can't you just change? (laughs) Anyway, how about we agree to disagree with that? So we have our little world established. We've met everyone. We continue to get those glimpses into their lives. My favorite moment during this section is as we're scanning through the courtyard and we see Miss Lonely Hearts through the window and we can see her shoulders sag and I feel that weight on her. I also have a favorite moment in this sequence where we are scanning the neighbors watching what's going on through the window because it further reveals what a crud Lisa is. (laughs) (laughs) Now I think you're just looking for it. Uh, I don't have to look for it when it's laid out right there on the table. The sequence with Miss Torso, where she's throwing a cocktail party and juggling wolves, as they put it. She has these suitors of various ages, all competing for her attention. And Lisa, in her put-upon way, tells him he has no idea what a struggle it is to be that socialite, to be that person. False dichotomy is your logic error here. Guess what? You can opt out of that lifestyle. You do not have to engage. You do not have to choose this as an option. You do not have to run this gauntlet constantly. You can be something else. It's clear she does not want to be, and she wants to make herself a martyr because of it right here. Now, this last moment before we get into what I think of as the end of Act 1 is the pivotal sound moment for us. We hear a glass-breaking and a noise that sounds like don't. And so Jeff registers it, but he doesn't necessarily think anything terrible has happened. And it made me think about all of those moments where we maybe don't connect something we see or hear to what has happened. Interesting that you mentioned things being slightly disconnected there, because I also really love how often in this opening section, Thorwald and his wife are shot in separate rooms. There is a physical barrier between them in addition to the obvious marital strife. When you see him making these preparations, you see him on the phone, you see him looking furtively out the window, and since we know what's coming, what do you think his secret is? What do you think he does this for? What's the motivation? Is it an affair? Is it a scam that she might get wind of? Is it that she's just such a millstone? Is there an inheritance? What do you think he goes to this extreme to gain? To answer that question, that also makes me think of another one of these older tropes of the invalid, which is something I don't think of much of these days. You don't have a person living in your home who constantly has the vapors, whatever those vapors were, whether she actually had some sort of a nervous disorder or severe arthritis or TB or who even knows, but it's a person who is bedbound 
that begins to become, rather than an actual medical martyr, a burden. Especially if she's a hypochondriac? Especially if this is not legitimate? Yes, when the idea of what the actual medical illness, if there ever was one, heart trouble or these vague nerves, it's always used to an end of a person who is exploiting this for their own gain. And then when they become embittered or they were already a nag to begin with, you've got burden plus heat equals murder. And it's not as though he's one of these Park Avenue sophisticates that we think are constantly hounding Lisa. He's a neighborhood guy. If there's an affair happening, it's probably an affair of convenience. And there's probably no money really anywhere to speak of. So it's like the wolf gnawing away his own arm to get out of the chain. Now, did that answer your question? What do you think? Am I missing anything? I agree. I'm also familiar with the 1910 case... That is one of the two murders that this is loosely based on. And that one had a lot to do with the wife being an obstacle. You are between me and my mistress. But I guess it boils down to that's generally the case no matter what. You are between me and something I want. Whether that's a relative amount of freedom, whether that's another woman, whether that's a pile of money. In every case, you are the thing that must be overcome for me to be happy again. And Thorwald did have the woman pretend to be his wife. So obviously he's in cahoots with some female. And there was at least one moment before where his wife, still living at the time, had discovered him acting furtively on the phone. So potentially he was calling someone he didn't want his wife to hear. And I would first think woman. Now, do you have anything else to add to this act before we never see this wife again? More about Lisa. Oh, here we go. (laughs) She and Jeff are having this conversation before this pivotal bit of sound that you mentioned takes place. And he's trying to explain to her what his life is like, the life he would like to lead, and how difficult and decidedly unglamorous it is. And she thinks she gets it. And we've had people say that to us, for instance, that came on tour with us for just a stretch. They think they know what it's going to be like, and we try to tell them no set schedule You might be sleeping on floors. You might be sleeping in cars. Prepare to forego every comfort. Oh, sure, no problem. And only when we are sleeping in the third basement in a row or outside when it's 110 degrees in Phoenix, Arizona, do they realize that they're that person that needs eight hours of quiet sleep with their little pillowy mask on. And they never should have come. This is her right now. I've seen it plenty. And the thing that just is a dead giveaway is that thing she says right here. You don't think either one of us could ever change? Do you legitimately think she's talking about herself at that point? Do you sincerely believe she means her? Or is she saying, don't you think you could ever change to be the thing I want you to be? I'll answer that for you. (laughs) No, she does not mean that. She is not talking about herself. She means you do what I want. Agreed. And that's also coming from the person who likes the little pillowy thing over their eyes to go to sleep and does not want to be touched by anyone or any degree of heat at any point during sleep. And that is why I am not going on tour with you guys. That's the difference though. You know yourself and you would never ask and you would never say something as dumb as, no, I've got it. I understand when you fully don't. So we are agreed and I am history's greatest hero. (laughs) Right? Yeah, exactly. Fortunately though, right here, someone is murdered so we don't have to listen to her anymore. (laughs) Good job. A cry rings out in the night and we know something terrible has happened. 
Now this has been happening as it's getting later and later and later, and Jeff has been drifting off. Now it's fully the middle of the night at this point, and a storm starts. And we see our married couple who have been sleeping out on the fire escape on their mattress. They've got to quickly drag that mattress in while it starts raining. This is one of my favorite little bits. Your favorite bits because of the comedy, because of what it represents, or because of the bit of contradictory direction he gave them? The bit of contradictory direction, plus it looks so natural, and now we know why. Well, unbeknownst to the two actors playing the married couple, he directed each one of them to pull in a slightly different direction, which generates a fun comic effect of tussling over this when the rain starts to fall and the man falling backwards into the apartment, which was not intended to happen. It's just one of those little bits of serendipity that make all the difference in a film sometimes. Now, as the storm goes on through the night, we see Thorwald leave periodically with a suitcase, so he is getting things out of the apartment. Now, I know people for whom it is a big pet peeve when there are obviously empty suitcases on screen. In this case, though, it functions exactly the right way, because when he leaves the apartment, they're obviously full of something, and when he comes back, that's when they are obviously empty. Now, I know we mentioned the murder cases that this was based on, one in 1910 and one in 1924, this is three decades later, but do you think audiences were emotionally prepared for what he was suggesting with those cases being full and then empty, then full, then empty? Do you imagine it was as shocking as I think it might have been in 1954, or am I not giving those audiences enough credit? Now, I wasn't there, so I can't say for sure, but I do think it would have seemed quite shocking. And there is a section later on when it's clearly suggested that Jeff and Lisa have a sexual relationship. And to me, that's exciting to see even now, to look at adults in the period being honest. Now, do you think, however, that the audience was clued into these are body parts exiting the apartment, or maybe just clothes or jewelry or something like that? It might not have been their first thought, but then when the saws and knives come out, it probably crept into the corners of their imagination a little bit. Probably also didn't take long for them to put two and two together with Thelma Ritter helping it along, talking about blood spatter. Now Jeff at last falls asleep, and he misses a key piece of information that we, the audience, see, which is that in one of these trips, Thorwald leaves with a woman whose face we can't see, but it's clear it's not the wife. Is it entirely clear that it's not his wife? I think there's a little bit in play of that unreliable narrator, we don't quite know what we see red herring thing happening. I think we're talking about it now, obviously, from the perspective of having seen it over a dozen times, and so can we remember back to when we weren't sure, maybe, if that was her or not. And one thing I was thinking about in that context this time, which I hadn't really considered a ton before, was the effect of the medicine that he might be taking. This whole story is told from his perspective, but when you look at his injury, that cast is pretty severe. It's not just a simple broken leg. And when you see the photo that he took when he sustained that injury, an automobile is flying directly at him. So this was probably a pretty intense experience that involved surgery, stitches, staples, plates, who knows what is going on underneath that cast. And so there has to be a pretty regular regimen of pretty stout painkillers. And we clearly see him take medicine at one point. We're not told what it is. Plus, he's drinking regularly as well. He's sleeping in that chair, which doesn't make for a great night's sleep. So 
it is quite conceivable that we should not completely rely on what he is thinking that he's seeing. So it's reasonable to question his version of events. Another thing that I like about that idea is that Hitchcock shoots a lot of these people with indistinct faces. Here in a moment, we're about to see Thorwald closely for the first time, and up till now, everyone has been quite indistinct. And I, for one, couldn't pick any of these people out of a lineup if I were pressed to. That's interesting. I don't want to skip over that. But before we get to what you just said, I just wanted to plant that seed that it might be possible that he might not have all the information, and it wouldn't be a huge stretch for his police friends to think exactly that. Now, that whole thing about faces being blurry and indistinct, how many of our literal neighbors would you recognize if you saw them in a lineup right now? Zero. I could probably identify their dogs or cats more clearly than I could any of them. It makes me think it's a little bit of a shame because I, I think very similarly to you, could happily live the rest of my life and not be able to pick those faces out. But this neighborhood, the way it functions as an organism, sort of, it requires that interaction. It's a living, breathing thing, and for justice to be served, it has to function as a whole, which I will get to in much greater detail when we wrap this whole thing up. And as you mentioned, those neighborhood players continue on about their business. I'm going to compress down a little bit of the action here because everyone is doing their own thing. The key entrance is of the little dog who lives on one of the upper floors and the owners have rigged that ingenious pulley system so they can let the dog out and down. Now, the dog is starting to get interested in the flower bed that Thorwald has been tending. And at this point, Jeff pulls out his additional tools to investigate further into what Thorwald is up to. He's got the binoculars and then the telephoto lens. In the meantime, we see some of those creative and romantic entanglements play out. We've got the songwriter who is stymied at this point, so he's doing housework. And we've got the newlyweds who still haven't taken a break yet from their activities. Meanwhile, Lisa is back in the picture and she is in Jeff's lap. I was following two different trains of thought right here when she sits in his lap. I was thinking specifically about his sexuality. And I know you mentioned that it is implied that there are things going on. Very subtle, though. And anytime we see actual activities start to begin with the two of them, especially in this case right here, he is overwhelmed by the choice to watch other people instead. The availability of sex, even though it's lame Grace Kelly sex, <laughs> is literally sitting in his lap. And yet, instead, he chooses to essentially, second train of thought, turn on the television. I think of this as an indictment of the effect that television was having on American morals and the American household. It was still early on for television, and not necessarily every household had a TV in 1954. And even if he had one in this apartment, he didn't turn it on because he had a variety of channels just from opening his window. He essentially invented reality television, or soap operas, because that's what's going on. Melodrama and soap opera is what is happening across the way in a variety of homes. You just move from one to the next to the next. Or maybe I'm reading too much into it, and that's just his kink. Maybe he's a voyeur by way of the films he made. And in explicit statements, Hitchcock made no bones about the fact that people like to watch. At this point, if you go by Hitchcock's filmography and the things he had to say about it in interviews, this peaking 
this voyeurism is so pervasive as to be vanilla. I wouldn't even say it's a kink anymore in his particular worldview. Everyone does this in the movies, and especially now lurid reality television, seem to confirm that it is about as mainstream a behavior as you can engage in. At any rate, she is clearly not getting what she wants, and she's upset by it. Her issue is she's spoiled, and she's used to getting everything she wants. He represents, especially with his attention being drawn away from her, her not getting her way. Or maybe I'm not being sensitive enough to his condition, because you can't exactly get a lot going on underneath a full lower body cast. Speak for yourself. (laughs) So, if her issue is that she's spoiled, what's his issue? All of this discussion about sexuality and how that's all playing out in these relationships that we see throughout the neighborhood, it makes me think of impotence, or at least the fear of impotence. Jeff is watching all of these peccadilloes play out. We've got the newlyweds, as we see those sort of boing moments where the wife is obviously sucking the husband dry and then (laughs) discarding him at the end. She turns into a nag at the end. He clearly wants to keep banging Lisa with no other commitment, and that's fine. No problem. We've got that songwriter who can't quite make it happen in his professional life, so we see it playing out with him doing this sort of women's work, housework. We've got the single women in various ages playing out their specific roles. We, of course, have Thorwald, the impact husband, and now the possibly dead, mutilated, chopped-up wife. And he, meanwhile, has this armor around him. Jeff does. He's got this cast. He can't do anything during this period. And he is hearing Lisa tell him that she's going to take away his power. That is, if she has her way, ultimately. Where's Barbara Bill Geddes in Vertigo when you need her? She would straighten all of this out and then everything would be fine if he would just see what's wonderful about her instead. Well, he doesn't have Barbara Belgetti's for a distraction. He just has this neighborhood murder. You know what's never good? Trunk. It's true. Jeff is trying to puzzle through what he thinks maybe has happened while Lisa is trying to poke holes in this theory. And then we see Thorwald with some rope and a trunk. Therefore, oh, nope. That makes Lisa really turn the corner and get on Jeff's side. Too little too late, sister. Jeff then is ready to rope in his police buddy, Doyle. And while Stella and Lisa are both completely intrigued and on board at this point, Doyle is not. Doyle goes over the so-called evidence that Jeff has and proceeds to poke holes in it all over the place and also do some investigation on the side, if nothing else, to shut Jeff up. And now Stella and Lisa are about to take a central role in all of his action. They're going to start going out and doing all of these things that Jeff can't. Again, impotence. Stella absolutely strikes me as the type that, if it were 2017, is listening to true crime podcasts and is active in every internet web sleuth forum you could imagine. Doyle, at this point, is able to point out some logical inconsistencies to really cast out, like you were saying to make Jeff into an unreliable narrator. So while this is going on, we get to Miss Lonely Hearts again. She's about to go out for the evening. Everything significant that is happening in this array of neighbors' windows, I love how it is driven by desperation. Desperation to create, desperation to be attached in her case, desperation to be unattached in Thorwald's case. And it underlines a couple of things for me that I like to think about right here. 
how this neighborhood is a microcosm of the world at large and how everyone has their struggle that they're dealing with and how when we are wrapped up in the middle of these, these struggles feel monumental. It's literally life and death in the two cases that we mentioned specifically here, Miss Lonely Hearts with her upcoming attempted suicide in the Thorwalds and that homicide. And with that homicide that is still in doubt on Doyle's part, Jeff thinks that Thorwald is going to make his final move that he's going to clear out tonight. So it's time for them to act. This is the moment where Lisa declares that she's going to stay the night and she has that overnight case in her negligee. This was the part I was talking about that was very exciting to me when I was younger and still is to look at adults being honest about what it is they're going to do. And so while the outside action is put to bed for the moment, the inside action is just starting to heat up. When Doyle comes back, now there's a big buildup with that moment where he asks Jeff to talk again about what else have you got? And the music happening outside seems to be leading to some big reveal. In that moment, I feel so deflated in the audience. Did you feel the same way when Doyle says Lars Thorwald is no more a murderer than I am? I don't know if I specifically felt it as much as you maybe because I knew how this was going to turn out. Even from the very first viewing, I had no doubt they were going to catch this bad guy. So Doyle manages to explain away every piece of evidence that Jeff might have. And Jeff and Lisa are pretty morose at this point. Miss Lonely Hearts comes home with a much younger man, clearly, and they enact yet another of these negative relationships. He proceeds to basically try to rape her, it looks like. She's got to fight him off. I'm intensely curious how, with the pervasive social attitudes in 1954, that was perceived. If a significant section of that audience was not sympathetic to her because she, quote, brought it on herself, unquote, by bringing this young man back to her house with illicit intentions. I don't even know if illicit intentions frames that the right way. And would the audience even allow Miss Lonely Hearts to have an illicit intention? Would it be okay for the man, not okay for the woman? And I don't know the answer to that. And that's the moment, though, that makes Jeff and Lisa finally turn away a bit. Shame is what they feel, do you think, right there? They've looked too long and seen something too personal. Murder is not personal enough. People cavorting in their underwear is not personal enough. Loneliness is a thing that is so full of degradation that they can't bear to look at it anymore? Yes, I think pity even more than shame. And when they finally pull that shade down again, they make the mistake that I always make, which is that they've looked away too quickly. And this is when a major incident happens. That little dog who's been investigating the whole time has been killed. This moment I love because we actually see everyone's face up close, Miss Lonely Hearts and Miss Torso, whom we haven't really seen distinctly before. Sharp close-ups of them. We notice that everyone has come out to look except for one person. And the only thing we see is Lars Thorwald's burning cigarette in the dark. And now as we go into our final act, we've got the three conspirators, Jeff and Stella and Lisa, musing over how one Thorwald might have gotten rid of his wife's body and what investigation and evidence they might be able to find on their own without getting Doyle involved. And before we get into how that action plays out, 
I wanted to point out something that I haven't gotten around to yet, which is costume design. This work is by the great Edith Head, whom Hitchcock worked with on a number of occasions, and I think it's really interesting to go back in this repeated viewing setting and look at how the different colors tend to mirror what's happening, and look at how she uses a color palette to link characters to each other. In the previous section, we had Lisa in green, and then we also saw Miss Lonely Hearts having a different shade of green as well. And now, in this final bit, we've got Lisa in a dress with some hints of orange and beige and brown, and that's mirrored in Stella's dress as well. So if we have Lisa aligned with Miss Lonely Hearts first, and then with Stella, what does that signify? Is that a change in the overall situation of the story? Has Lisa moved from one place to another? Because with the green, for instance, her green and Miss Lonely Hearts green are obviously very different. With Lisa, that green is money. With Miss Lonely Hearts, that green is likely envy and jealousy of what everyone has that she doesn't have. It could be symbolic of rebirth for the two of them. How do you read the shift from one to another? I hadn't thought about it in the way that you just specified, and I think that's really interesting. I was thinking of it a bit more in terms of Miss Lonely Hearts is reflecting that sense of romantic disentanglement that Lisa's going through in that moment when they're still sparring over the issue of being together. And so Miss Lonely Hearts is playing that out writ large. And I had forgotten about one moment until you just said that way back towards the beginning when Lisa comes in in the black and white dress. We also have Miss Torso in the black dress as well. So it's that sort of party girl socialite. And then into romantic situation Jeopardy. And then towards the end, Jeff's two women who are playing out this investigation in a way that he can't. And then one last note that I have here that has nothing to do with color, but which I find totally fascinating is that when you look at all of Stella's dresses, it seems completely possible that they were all made from the same pattern, which I think is so fun and seems like it would be completely realistic for that character. And now back to this plan that they're putting together. The idea is to get Thorwald out of the apartment so that Stella and Lisa can first try to investigate what may have happened in the flower bed, what that little dog may have found that got him killed. And it moves pretty quickly from here. Lisa takes it upon herself to get into Thorwald's apartment with a little flourish of daring do here. She's able to climb over the fire escape, in through the small balcony, in through the window, which frightens Jeff at the same time as it makes him pretty excited as well. And Stella has come back into Jeff's apartment to relay what Lisa's plan is. Ring the apartment if you see Thorwald coming. In the meantime, she's going to try to find any kind of evidence that she can. Lisa makes a discovery by way of no discovery. She can't find anything. At this crucial moment, Thorwald comes back. And in the meantime, we've already mentioned this a bit, but Stella has noticed that Miss Lonely Hearts is attempting suicide. She's laid out some pills. She's writing a note. These things are happening at the same time as Thorwald discovers Lisa because there's nowhere to go in that tiny apartment. The huge moment for us as the audience and for Jeff as he's watching impotently in that apartment is Lisa points out she has found the wedding ring and she slipped it on her own finger and is gesturing to it Nice little bit of an aside of, hey, when are you going to marry me? 
So the only option that Stella and Jeff have is to call the cops, get Lisa out of there, also, at the same time, try to save Miss Lonely Hearts. This is all happening as the music is reaching a crucial moment in the songwriter's apartment. It's weird that you say that, I realize now, because as musically oriented as I am, I did not think about the music much at all in this movie, especially as it pertained to the action of the scenes. A moment that I love, if nothing else is a movie-making device, is that the beauty of the song actually stops Miss Lonely Hearts from taking that final crucial step to swallowing all of those pills. She's entranced by it. It also distracts Lisa for a moment as well. Do you think your music has ever stopped a murder from happening? <laughs> no. Well, maybe. But I somehow doubt it. I did make one solo record that was probably half murder ballads. So, if I had to guess, maybe not. And speaking of murder, it looks like Lisa might possibly be the next victim. Thorwald is shaking her so angrily. It's a really terrifying moment to watch. Fortunately, the cops arrive just in time. They're able to get Lisa out of there. Stella is planning to go try to bail her out. Now, however, though, Jeff has probably been seen by Thorwald, Lisa yelled out his name. He was able to turn off the light in his apartment and back up, but he has most likely been seen. And so we're headed to the final showdown. This is the moment of ultimate terror in the film for me, when Jeff looks back across the way and sees that empty apartment now. And we know that Thorwald is on the way. I would love to see, or even do myself, a shot-by-shot, side-by-side breakdown of this showdown with the scene in the hotel from... No Country for Old Men. It has all these neat parallels, the light going out in the hallway, the footsteps, the unconventional weapon being the flashbulbs versus the compressed air canister. The thing I love most about this scene, though, is the thing that sets it apart, the discussion. Thorwald asks him a great question. What do you want from me? Hitchcock talked about this moment as well, when we, the audience, possibly realize Jeff is kind of a jerk here. <laughs> <laughs> kind of, if you're really stretching the definition, I guess. Did you feel that way about it? I never thought of it before I was reading more about this. I never thought really of Thorwald as being kind of the underdog. He is the person who has been done wrong, if you want to see it in one light. His wife doesn't give him a good time of it. She serves no purpose. He got her out of the way in order to try to have possibly a happier life. Possibly even the world is better off. He was simply trying to create his own private murder. He wasn't hurting anyone else in the street. And Jeff's now trying to ruin the whole deal. Well, that busybody is going to get his because Thorwald is going to drop him out of the window. Do you think as he's hanging from this ledge, screaming for the police, hanging on for dear life, that he thought... Man, I was a jerk. I should have just stayed out of this. Do you think he regretted getting involved in this right then? I don't know that in that moment where he has that wonderful James Stewart grimace, whimper, that he does so well. Harrison Ford is another person who does it so well. I don't think he's thinking about justice in that moment. I don't think he's thinking that Mrs. Thorwald can rest in peace now because I have saved the neighborhood. Maybe, maybe not. 
I say that because I feel like there are two contradictory ideas in play as far as dispensing justice throughout this film. And now that I think about the way you phrase it as him creating a murder, one of the things I was thinking the whole time was about how the neighborhood would have done something even if Jeff had not. Because when you look at the neighborhood as an organism, it's very homogeneous. It is creation where Thorwald is about destruction. So they would have found a way to push that out. So I think the neighborhood as an entity would have solved this with Jeff or without Jeff as one of its agents. But the way they do it, the way you would have had to go about it, is the most intriguing part of the whole thing for me. Destruction of life, the ultimate crime, homicide, will not stand. But you have to commit all of these other minor infractions to receive justice. To identify the killer, to bring him to the attention of the police, to get him prosecuted, you have to be a peeping Tom. You have to break and enter. You have to burgle. You know, what never occurred to me in the number of times that we were talking about this as an idea before the show, I couldn't really get a handle on it until something you said just made sense to me. We are in the age now of a neighborhood Facebook page and the Nextdoor app. And what happens anytime there is any news story about any person even tangentially related to the city that we are in or the neighboring city? Someone immediately posts it to the page, as in, this person could be walking around through your street or sitting out in front of your garage right at this moment. We all have to do something. And this being Texas, there's the inevitable, I wish he'd come in my house. Absolutely. That list of quote-unquote lesser crimes that any of us would be willing to commit starts with, number one, informing on each other. We're doing it constantly. We're this nation of busybodies now. Up through, I'm going to patrol the neighborhood as a vigilante. Up through, let's get our cars together and form some sort of a posse. Up through, let's take note of license plates. And here's a description of all these people. We're now all McGruff the crime dog waiting, hoping that something's going to happen so we can pounce on it and do something and earn our gold star. So in that sense, I guess Stella is much more the audience surrogate than Jeff ever was? Jeff starts because he's bored, really. Maybe the rest of us start because we have a little too much time on our hands, which is one of the things that inspired me to choose this for the episode in the first place. The other being that we all somehow think that if we suspected something was happening, we could do something about it. Well, since we're at the end and you mentioned that that's why you chose this, do you have other reasons or is that specifically the reason that you selected the film for the show this time? I do have a number of other reasons and it goes into a little bit of final thoughts, I would say. So before we get there, anything else you wanted to add about really the end of the film? We've sort of left Jeff hanging on that ledge outside of his apartment. Well, Jeff falls, the cops catch him, he still gets double the cast for his trouble. But ultimately, all is well. The neighborhood reverts to its nice, friendly, creative, stable environment. I'm sure Stella received a commendation from the mayor. The newlyweds have now become the Bickersons. <laughs> There's a new pup in town. Miss Lonely Hearts is now in white, and she's being uh, wooed a little bit by the songwriter. And Lisa is feasting on the carcass of Jeff. Reading books about high adventure and dig those crazy dungarees applesauce. That's Is that what, what I you say. say? Banana oil? 
She's not one of us plebes now. No, she's absolutely not. And just from her climbing around on one fire escape and stealing a wedding ring changes his mind, makes him see it a whole different way. He's dumber than I thought. Speaking of hopefully not being dumber than I thought you would be, I wanted to jump in here with one of the reasons why I chose this. This is just for you. I used Stella's speech, the part that we did for the playlet, (laughs) and one of the first things I ever wrote to you when I was trying to convince you to wise up and fall in love with me. Did it work? Maybe more than anything that you ever said otherwise. Of course it worked. If you had sent me your schedule that day, that was lunch at the Four Seasons and then meeting with magazine editors and then a photo shoot, no. Kick to the curb. I would have actually said, hey, can we just keep doing it? But (laughs) would we be sitting here doing this awesome show? No way. So I am going to make my case for everybody to watch this either for the first time or for the 50th time. Just like one of the central themes to why I chose Psycho, I feel like this, many of Hitchcock's films, and I mean, really, if we're going to talk about it, so many of the films we love are made for repeated viewing. As we've mentioned so many times throughout this, the incredibly interesting effect of the diegetic sound, the moments that I pointed out to you that you hadn't noticed, and you've seen this many times. The interesting things to note with the costume design, to decide for yourself what you think about Jeff, to look at all of these lives being lived out through this window as a reflection of the aspects of love and relationships as seen through Jeff. Pat Hitchcock, Alfred Hitchcock's daughter, who I have said some disparaging remarks about in previous episodes, mentioned this as Hitchcock 101. You have the anti-hero, the cool blonde, the humor, the grisly murder, a love story, and a dialogue about food. And then through it all, you can also just watch this as a riveting thriller. What do you think? Anything else that I've missed? Nothing that you've missed, but I do want to amplify the thing you said about rewatchability. That is why I would have chosen this. This is one of those that it changes for me every time I see it, because some facet of my life has changed. I first saw it when I was a young person, 13, 14 maybe. And so, for instance, it changed for me from that viewing until I had been in a serious relationship and had these discussions with people. It changed after I had visited New York for the first time and I had experienced these neighborhoods firsthand. It changed for me after I had experienced significant danger in my life for the first time. All these little signposts for me that I go back and take with me to this viewing next time means that it continues to evolve as I continue to evolve. Just a testament to how well-made it is and how universal its themes are and how well those themes are executed. And so how about your recommendation? Do you have something as eminently rewatchable for us as this? Well, (laughs) I have rewatched it several times. I actually don't know if you've even ever seen it. High Road to China. No, No, I've never seen that. That was slow boat to China. Or is that the phrase? That's the phrase. Okay. My recommendation is something that references this and many other Hitchcock films. And it is Manhattan Murder Mystery from 1993, directed by Woody Allen. Have you ever seen it? Yes, I have. But it didn't make much of an impression on me now that I think about it, though. So what stands out for you? I enjoyed it a lot the first time I saw it and have seen it a few times since then, but not for a long time, so I'm actually looking forward to going back to watching it. I have a copy of it, a digital copy, sorry. 
What stands out for me is actually Diane Keaton. She's really the star of it. And she takes the role of Jeff, but also Lisa. She does all the legwork. She's the one tracking down this murder. It's with Woody Allen, Diane Keaton, Alan Alda, and Angelica Houston. And it's about a middle-aged couple who suspect, really, it's the wife who suspects foul play when their neighbor's wife dies suddenly. As I mentioned, it's very referential. Also, not just Hitchcock films, there's a, an extended piece that echoes The Lady from Shanghai. I'm a huge Diane Keaton fan. She's wonderful in this. It's also really fun to see Alan Alda do his charming thing as well. He takes on the role of helping Diane Keaton track down some information for his own purposes. And I hadn't thought about it in a while, but when I was reading up on Rear Window, it was mentioned as, again, one of those things heavily influenced by Hitchcock in a totally different way. How about your recommendation? My recommendation is similar to yours, since, like you said, it makes reference to this in a number of other Hitchcock films. But that is the point at which we diverge. I am recommending High Anxiety from 1977, directed by Mel Brooks and starring Brooks and a number of his usual ensemble players, Harvey Korman, Cloris Leachman, Madeline Kahn. And it's the story of a psychiatrist who has been hired to replace the former director of a sanitarium that died under mysterious circumstances. The plot doesn't matter. The plot is the biggest MacGuffin, which may be the biggest tribute to Hitchcock of all. It's just an excuse to run through a series of vignettes that affectionately parody all of Hitchcock's favorite tropes. The wrongly accused man, fear of heights, point of view cameras pushing in through windows. Aberrant sexuality. <laughs> it's true, I didn't even think of that. But speaking of, as she often does, Cloris Leachman absolutely steals the show in this. She has my favorite character name maybe in the history of film as Nurse Diesel. I can't even keep a straight face when I say the name. If you're a Hitchcock fan and a Mel Brooks fan, it is a really fun way to spend an afternoon. It's not high art. It's high anxiety. And that's two great recommendations, high anxiety and Manhattan murder mystery. And that brings us to the end of episode 56. If you haven't taken a look at our Patreon yet, we would love it if you would do that. It's at patreon.com slash magiclantern. It's a great way to contribute to the success and ongoing growth of the show. You can start for as little as a dollar per month, and every little bit helps. Starting at $5 a month, you get access to many bonus episodes, so you'll never have to go a Monday without Magic Lantern in your life. If you would just like to get in touch with us, you can reach us at magiclanternpodcast at gmail.com. We are on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube. Just search for Magic Lantern Podcast in any of those venues. We are on Twitter, at Lantern underscore cast. And I would just like to take a second to say thanks to everyone who has given us feedback or shared the show since last time. Tim Lego, Andy Wolverton, Jan Willis, Terry Osterhout, Mike Scharf, The Pod Couple, The AB Film Review and Andrew Pierce, The Fine Gentleman over at Fuds on Film, and a special thanks to our friend Matteo Boscarol this time for including us in a really nice article he wrote in the Italian publication Il Manifesto about podcasting and cinephilia. Thanks, Matteo. We appreciate you including us in that. We are on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher Radio. If you would like to leave us a rating or review like some anonymous nice person did last week, we would certainly appreciate it. And finally, you can find all of our episodes, including supplemental material, at the website magiclanternpodcast.com. 
and thank you for listening to the Magic Lantern Podcast.